I'll tell you how the work of God gets built. It gets built with humble, godly men and women from all walks of life who will carry bricks, carry a beam, help to nail things together, take the time to help build God's work. That's God's will for our lives. So Nehemiah chapter number 2. Let's see here. Um, We're going to be reading just a couple of verses together. One verse in chapter 2 and um, five verses in chapter 3. So we've got a couple of um, those Old Testament names there to deal with in uh, the first few verses of chapter 3. So if you have the book, would you stand to your feet with me, please? Folks that are watching at home, would you please also read along with us? So Nehemiah chapter 2, let's read verse 18 out loud together. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. Now, if you remember, the work was to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They were dilapidated in a terrible condition. And uh, God's people needed to be about God's work. Uh, There was work to be done. And so we come to chapter 3, and we'll, we'll do our best, shall we? The first five verses. Let's try it now together. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests, and they builded the sheep gate. They sanctified it and set the doors of it, even unto the tower of Mia. They sanctified it unto the tower of Hananiel. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho. And next to them builded Zakur, the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassaniah build who also laid the beams thereof and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto them repaired Miramoth, the son of Urijah, the son of Koz. And next unto them repaired Mishalam, the son of Birakia, the son of Meshiabel. And next unto them repaired Zadok, the son of Baana. And next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles put not their necks to the work of their Lord. All right, you may be seated. For uh, seven, tonight would be the seventh. The seven Wednesdays, we have been working on this series uh, entitled uh, The Victorious Christian Life. Uh, Living the Victorious Christian Life. And... um, Uh, we have made comment here that uh, the Christian life is essentially Christ's life. And the reason why that we often feel so ho-hum in our Christian lives is we're trying to do it in our strength. We're trying to live the Christian life the way that we think it ought to be lived. And that is our mistake. Because... It can only be lived successfully Christ's way. That's why it's the the Christian life. So 
we set about seeing if we could change some of the ho-hum into some hooray and some victory. And so when we began this little uh, series, we began by learning to recognize sin and repent of it and remove it from our lives. Folks, that is step number one. If we don't get serious about sin, nothing else is going to work. No matter how appealing some of the lessons sound, if we don't deal with the sin first, then nothing is going to happen. Trust me. And so, um, then, the second lesson, we looked at the filling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will only fill us and control us if we've dealt with the sin problem. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not that complicated a matter. In fact, it's, it's rather simple to understand and basic. The problem is we keep forgetting. We get up in the morning and away we go and we've forgotten to ask the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Out the door we go with a cup of coffee in our hand. You know, boy, i got to get to work, got to get to school, got things to do, people to see, places to go, decisions to make, with no filling of the Holy Spirit. So we have to get in the habit every day, asking the Lord to cleanse us from worldliness and any known sin, and ask the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit. Boy, that's the way to begin the day. The third lesson, of course, was letting the Bible speak to us. Not once a year, once a month, but once a day at least. Let the Bible speak to our hearts. And then we have to, we have to follow that up with earnest prayer. Now you've been given a prayer list. Uh, those watching at home, you've been emailed a prayer list. And use that. You might say, well, uh, that's a lot for me to pray. Well, then split it in half. And uh, pray half today and half tomorrow and then the third day pray the first half again and then the fourth day pray the second half you could do something like that uh, i like to pray through the whole list every day every morning everyone on that list gets prayed for i also have a couple of other little lists that i pray through as well we must incorporate earnest prayer um, the fifth lesson was in regular church fellowship you cannot grow as a Christian, if you forsake the assembling of yourself together, then uh, last, last week we looked at the importance of preaching and how that it's through the foolishness of preaching that God was pleased to pour his power. Um, uh, us preachers, we know that we're you know, just clay vessels. We know that. And we do make mistakes. Uh, some of them are humorous. Um, as we're preaching along, we'll say something without even realizing it, meaning, thinking we're saying something else. I mean, that this sort of thing happens to all of us. Uh, so we're definitely imperfect vessels, but the Word of God is perfect. And God must get a little smile once in a, once in a while from some, some of our preaching. But if we're faithful preaching His Word, then we're going to get the results that He's promised. And the results are good. We must always get under the preaching of God's Word. And then tonight is our last in the series, and we're examining the necessity of serving the Lord. We must serve the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, without serving the Lord, we cannot, we cannot um, live the victorious Christian life. So, let's uh, have a word of prayer. 
And then we're going to get into this little passage here. Boy, it illustrates for us the necessity of serving the Lord. Bow your head and close your eyes and let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to the last message in this series. Seven messages, seven lessons on living the victorious Christian life. Help us not to miss what you have for us tonight. Help us, Lord, to realize the necessity of serving you. And I pray you, Father, that you would touch the hearts of all your people uh, connected here with this church. All of the Christian men and women who park their feet under the table of the Lord here at Grace Baptist, who call this church home. And I pray that you would lay on their heart the desire to serve you. Help us to grow and live the victorious Christian life as we implement these things and this thing here tonight about serving you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, here's the holy city. And the, the city walls are in ruins. The, there's work to be done. In the holy city, there was need for workers. And there was a job for everyone. And uh, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 32, that's the whole chapter, we're told how... Everyone got involved. Everyone got involved serving the Lord here. In verse 1, we see the high priest uh, was involved. He laid aside, of course, his um, uh, uh, ceremonial robes. I guess maybe he put on a pair of jeans and maybe a a checkered work shirt, a pair of uh, work gloves or something. And he got involved helping and working. And also with him were the regular priests. It says... The high priest rose up with his brethren, the priests. And so here in verse 1, the high priest and regular priests, all the pastors got involved. In verse 2, we see that there were cities of men. In this particular case, it's the men of Jericho. They got all involved here and they helped out. In verse number 3, you have uh, the sons of men. And it says... um, we have the sons of Hassaniah. And so the sons of men got involved. In verse number four, you have uh, individuals who were named specifically uh, as they got involved helping out. And um, in verse number eight, we'll go down here. Uh, we have, it says, next unto him repaired Uziel, the son of Harhiah of the goldsmiths. You see that in verse eight you have the tradesmen that were getting involved. And if there had been plumbers back then, the plumbers would have got involved. And the electricians and the carpenters and the the drywall men and the painters, all of the tradesmen would have gotten involved. Maybe the chariot mechanics as well. But the tradesmen got involved. That's not all. Look at verse number 9. It says, Next unto them repaired, now this is a strange name, Rufiah the son of Hur, and watch who he was here, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem. The politicians got involved with the work of God. And if you look at verse number 12, it says, And next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of half the part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. And so the women got involved. And so that's pretty exciting. In verse number 17, um, it says, after him repaired the Levites. Those were essentially the musicians. 
the people who played all of the instruments. They laid their instruments aside. They got involved uh, serving the Lord and helping to rebuild the walls. And if you look, please, at verse 32, and between the going uh, up of the corner under the sheep gate repaired the goldsmiths, there's those uh, tradesmen again, and the merchants. And so the businessmen got involved as well. Now, someone is um, uh, worthy of double honor here. If you go back to verse 5, it says, Next unto them the Tekoites repaired. And if you look at verse 27, here they are again in another place. Uh, after them, the Tekoites repaired another piece. And so the Tekoites even did double duty. They were to be praised. So everyone was working except, if you look at verse 5, see next unto them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles, the Tekoite nobles, put not their necks to the work of their Lord. And so it appears that the nobles didn't want to get their hands dirty. Now, who are these Tekoites? Well, they're Jews. It's just like we're, uh, we, we who live in Surrey, we, we're like Surreyites, right? But Surrey is further divided into smaller parts. In this area, it's Newton. So these would be Newtonites. You get the idea? But they're still Surreyites. And in the Holy Land, they were all Jews, but they broke themselves down into the little um, areas, geographical classifications. And so Tekoa was a small town about eight miles to the south of Jerusalem. And they got involved because, remember, these are the walls of Jerusalem. They didn't say, oh, it has nothing to do with Tekoa. No, they were concerned about the city of God. The Tekoites were living at this point in Jerusalem after they returned from the Babylonian captivity. And the nobles of Tekoa were the famous ones because of their rank and title and their birthright. Now, this problem with the nobles seems to have spread to other nobles. And so some would have said, well, they're not getting involved. Why should I? And this was a problem, it seems, amongst the nobles, so much so that Nehemiah had to call them together. Now turn to chapter 5, if you would, please. Chapter number 5. And we will uh, look at verse number 6. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and these words. Then I consulted with myself and I rebuked the nobles. And the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury, every one his, his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren? Or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the heathen, our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses, also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn and the wine and the oil that ye exact of them. And they said, We will. Restore them, and 
will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. Then I called the priests and took an oath of them that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performeth not this promise. Even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. And so the nobles had such a a, a, a snooty attitude and a stuffed shirt, a, a swelled head kind of attitude that not only did they uh, not want to get their hands dirty serving the Lord and helping with moving bricks and building the wall, but they even went as far as to uh, take advantage of their fellow Jews. And so Nehemiah could stand it no longer. He got them all together, raked them over the coals, and they said, you're right, we're wrong, okay, We won't do this anymore. And if you look at chapter 6 and verse number 15, we have the result of all this. Uh, Let's see. So the wall was finished in the 25th day of the month of Elul in 50 and 2 days. 52 days. That was an absolute astonishing miracle to clear away all the rubble and get all of the walls rebuilt and the gates hung and everything. Uh, And so, you know, glory to God. Now, the church that Jesus builds is a growing church. The Lord Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will, what's the next word? Build. I will build my church. The church that Jesus builds is a growing church. That's Jesus' plan for Grace Baptist Church, is for us to be a growing church. Uh, 23 and a half years ago, when we started Grace Baptist Church, there was five of us in the family of the Whites, and there was one old lady with us, so there were six of us. And so from there, we held our first public service in the Bear Creek Park. Out of the woodwork came about 19 other people And we had 25 people. Now, if we had said 25 people, we went from 6 to 25 overnight. We are the fastest growing church in Surrey. Maybe in all of BC. Who knows? Why ruin a good thing? Let's just take it easy. We got 25 people in church. Hey, this is wonderful. And then... We supported three missionaries. Whoa, the icing on the cake. This is wonderful. Why rock the boat? Why do more than is necessary? And we could have said that. But the church that Jesus builds is a growing church. And we knew we couldn't stop there. We had to keep growing. We had to keep trying to reach more Surreyites. We had to keep trying to reach more people in the world through missionaries. And we've been working at it now, going on 24 years. And now we've got a quite a bit larger church in quite a bit bigger building. Yes, our expenses have gone way up, but so have the blessings. From three missionaries to 108 missionaries and many other ministries, including a Bible college. Well, when is enough is enough? When do we arrive at the point where we say we've arrived? We, we don't until we get to heaven. 
Because Jesus said, I will build my church. If Jesus were standing here tonight, Jesus, what are your plans for Grace Baptist Church? He would say, I will build my church. The church that Jesus builds is a growing church. And there are many jobs that are important and need to be done in a growing church. Now let's turn to the New Testament, shall we? Let's go all the way over to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. Now I want to show you and prove to you beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is a necessity for all of God's people to get involved with the work of God. Just like we saw in the book of Nehemiah, all of God's people got involved. Except who? Who were they? The what? The nobles, yeah. Boy, it doesn't sound very noble to me. I think all the rest of the people were more noble than the nobles. But they probably thought that they were too good, you know, to lay aside their three-piece suits. They were too good to get a little dust on their shoes. So they, they thought, let the lesser men do the work. And we'll just sort of keep an eye and oversee things. That's not God's plan. God's plan is for all God's children to get involved with the work of God. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter number 3. And I'd like you to look, please, at verse number 9. Watch this. For we are, what's that word? Laborers together with God. We are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. The word husbandry has that idea of like a farm and the, uh, the crop out in the field. Uh, verse 10, According to the grace of God which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereon. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. You get the idea here of building, building, and that was very prevalent in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul looked upon himself as a builder of churches. Churches need to be built. We need to grow. We need to be everything that God wants us to be. This idea of, oh, we have a good thing going. Us four, no more. Let's not rock the boat. Let's not do anything that's going to, you know, jeopardize or, or lay an extra burden on our shoulder. No. I'll tell you how the work of God gets built. It gets built with humble, godly men and women from all walks of life who will carry bricks, carry a beam, help to nail things together, take the time to help build God's work. That's God's will for our lives. A good church should be a growing church. And it'll grow in different ways. And this requires Christian workers. Now, if we would turn to the left, to the book of Romans, just a couple of pages. I'd like you to see in chapter number 12. And I'm not going to read all of the eight verses. But 
We're told here in the first two verses to present our bodies to God. In verse 2, not to be conformed to the world. And then verse 3, not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought. Boy, that doesn't that sound like the nobles back in, the, in Nehemiah's day? But then you see, Paul starts going on to talk about all these different spiritual gifts. In verse 6, we've got all these gifts. Um, and he starts enumerating them. There was prophecy in verse 7, ministry, teaching uh, in verse number 8, exhortation, also giving and ruling and showing mercy. There's a seven of them there anyhow that he makes mention of. Spiritual gifts tell us, tell us that the church has many needs. God gifts men and women for jobs to be done. It is very important that we not miss this. I want to give you quickly 11 reasons why you and I ought to be serving the Lord. Every Christian ought to be serving the Lord. There should be no Christian who's not doing some kind of service for the Lord. I want to give you 11 reasons. Number one, it connects you with other great Christians. Great Christians are serving Christians. They always have been. They always will be. And when you lay aside your regal robes and you put a beam on your shoulder or you carry a rock or a brick or something and you're helping to build the work of God and you look around, so are these other great men and women of God. They're doing the same thing. When you serve the Lord in some fashion, you join a company, a fraternity, a family, of men and women who love God and want to serve Him. Number two, you will discover and develop your spiritual gifts and talents. You will not know what God has gifted you with in the area of spiritual gifts and talents if you're just sitting on your hands all the time. You have to get involved. You have to. That's how we grow. During our chapel service today, oh, we had a great chapel service today. Three of our young ladies had their piano test and so they had to play a, a, a hymn on, on the piano and so we got to sit there while they came up and they sat and they played and they did a nice job a beautiful job it was a blessing to our hearts but Miss Lydia she said is by way of introduction that this is how we grow and get better is by actually getting behind the piano and using our gifts and she's absolutely right. And in principle, it applies right across the board. You and I will not know all of the gifts and talents God has given us until we get busy. Number three, you will get a deeper understanding of God. There is no way that you can get a deeper understanding of God if you're just sitting on the sidelines not getting involved. You need to get involved. Number four, it increases your faith. Yes, it does. You will have a stronger faith. Now you might say, okay, well, I've been serving for one day now. I don't feel like I have a stronger faith. Give it time. Things have to grow. You know, it takes a while to grow those crops out in the field. The farmer doesn't throw the seed in and then the next day anxious because there's, there's no little things sprouting from the ground yet. He knows it takes time to get a good crop and a good harvest. Likewise, it's going to take time, but it will happen. This is the way it happens. You will increase your faith. You will increase your, your Christ-likeness. Jesus, 
was a servant. Jesus was always living for God and serving God. He's our example. Number five, you will receive God's favor on earth, including divine protection. There's no way you cannot receive God's favor, his divine favor. You know, if you're sitting off to one side doing nothing and just watching everyone serve the Lord, all these different ministries and jobs, and some of them are more public and some of them are more behind the scenes, but there's lots of jobs that you could be involved with. But if you're just sitting there watching everyone do everything else, you can't expect to have God's divine favor and protection the same as a man or woman who's involved and serving the Lord. And you know, serving the Lord, it does cost you in time. And it'll cost you maybe in some talents. And it may even cost you in some treasures. But whatever the cost, God richly rewards. God's divine favor and protection. Boy, you can't put a price on that. And you will have those as you get involved. Number six, of course, you will receive rewards in heaven. God is no man's debtor. He not only blesses on earth, but the real payday is going to come one day when we stand before the Lord Jesus and he examines our lives and he tells us how proud he is of us that we got involved and that we served him. And he may say, listen, no one else saw you dusting those dusty corners of the church, but I saw you do it and you did it for my glory. No one else saw you uh, taking an umbrella and helping someone from the car to get into the church so they wouldn't get wet. But I saw that. No one else saw you cleaning up this little mess that someone had left, but I saw you did that. And again and again and again, the Lord is looking for ways in which he can one day bless us in heaven. And the blessings we will get will far outweigh whatever little effort or cost we had to pay to serve him. So we will get rewards in heaven. Number seven, you will discover your purpose in life. Now by this, I mean sort of an overall purpose. There's a wonderful feeling to know that your life is counting for something and that you're where God wants you to be. And this is, all has to do with your purpose, God's overall plan for your life. You say, but th does that mean that God's going to call me into full-time service? God will call whomever he wants into full-time service. But if you are in the service of the king, you're already, so to speak, in full-time service. If you're serving the Lord with your heart and mind, whether you're working at the ABC company or the XYZ company, you are in the service of the king, wherever you may be. You will find your overall purpose in life as you get involved serving the Lord. Number eight, Serving the Lord brings peace and joy. That's the way it goes, folks. Hey, I've been in full-time ministry for 42 years now, and I can tell you there is peace and joy in serving the Lord. Now, I must be honest with you, there are times of trials and tribulations, but listen, you're going to get that and more if you're not serving the Lord. You're going to be out there just living for yourself. Of course, you're going to feel the trials and tribulations, but you won't have the strength. You won't have the divine protection to carry you through. So many Christians can get 
washed ashore or washed up on the rocks needlessly. If we would just get involved serving the Lord, we have God's divine favor and protection and so many other things. Number nine, it gets your focus off of yourself. That's one of our problems is our focus tends to be inward. What can I do for myself today? How can I protect myself today? How can I advance my cause today? What can I do to feather my nest today? What kind of new paint, new wallpaper, new carpet can I lay in my nest? Our focus tends to be on ourselves. But when we get involved, especially involved in ministries that are behind the scenes where people don't see us all the time, because they're, honestly, there can be a subtle temptation when you're in front of everyone serving in a ministry of preaching or singing or, or perhaps supplying music, there can happen it, uh, a temptation to feel, oh, I must be pretty good stuff. And uh, these people must think much of me. And uh, oh, I bet they go to bed thanking God that uh, they have me in their lives. Now, you might think that sounds a little silly. And of course it is silly. But it's also human and it's a trick of the devil. But it's a small trick. When we keep our eyes on Jesus, it gets our focus off of ourselves. We start thinking about others. We start thinking about brothers and sisters. We start thinking about visitors. We start thinking about lost people in the community and around the world. So serving the Lord helps get our focus off of ourselves. And some of us could really use a good dose of that. Number 10, it advances the kingdom of God on earth. When you serve the Lord, you are involved with serving the king. You're about the king's business, there's no finer work you can do. God's work is the most important work of all time and all eternity. You know, the Lord Jesus, in what we know as the Lord's Prayer, taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. Well, when we get involved serving the Lord, Various ways, various jobs. When we get involved serving the Lord, we help bring about the kingdom of God on earth. You know, I like to think that when the church gets together on Sundays and Wednesdays, it's like a family. It's like a, a haven of rest, if you will. The world treats us rough. The world treats us lousy some days. But we need to get together amongst God's people and rejoice and feel the fellowship and the presence of Jesus. And so when we get together, we are advancing the kingdom of God on earth just by encouraging the, the brothers and sisters. And then number 11, by serving the Lord, God will take care of your needs. We have that promise of God in Philippians 4.19, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And in context, that promise was given to a serving church, a giving church. They were giving to missions. That, I believe, is the primary application. 
The secondary application comes hand in glove with that. That as we serve the Lord, He's going to look after us. You know that's true when you serve the Lord with your tithes, with your faith promise. That's money that you are taking out of your pocket and you're giving to God. Don't you think that God sees that? And God understands your needs. And God makes the promise. Give and it shall be given unto you. And he makes the promise. When we bring our tithes into the storehouse, he'll open to us the windows of heaven. And he makes us the promise in the book of Proverbs that he is no man's debtor. What we give to God, he lovingly gives back to us in many ways. God is a giver and he loves to give. Now, of course, that's only just one area. There's many, you and I have many areas, not just financial. We have many areas of need. We are needy people. And when we get involved serving the Lord, all of a sudden, we get his divine favor, his divine protection, and his divine provisions as well. And he will see you through. And it doesn't matter what happens to the economy. <gasps> Pastor, have you seen the price of gas at the pumps? Uh, yeah, I, I got to pay it too. <gasps> have you seen the taxes are going up? Have you seen price of house? Listen, my wife and I, we drove past a little piece of ground for sale, not far from our house, just kind of around the corner. It's, it's a small lot. It's not a big lot. They want $1.25 million for that piece of dirt. Now, maybe you don't find that hard to swallow, but I do. $1.25 million for this chunk of dirt. That's what they're asking. Ay, 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 ay. How can anyone afford a house, you know, with those kind of prices? I know, I hear you. But it doesn't take God by surprise. And that's why the Bible tells us that as we are loving the Lord, following the Lord, serving the Lord, but my God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that ye having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. We don't know what tomorrow will hold. The price of food in the grocery store is going up too. What are we going to do? We're going to keep following the Lord. And God is going to keep meeting our needs. And here's the amazing thing. As things get crazy in this world, people are going to get desperate. And then they're going to look all of a sudden and they're going to see us. And they're going to see our calm disposition. They're going to see the joy in our lives. And they're saying, what do you have? How can, how can you be so calm? What is your secret? And we'll be able to tell them. The Bible says, be ready, you know, to give every man an answer for the hope that lieth in you. And so we'll be able to tell them, listen, I know the Lord. I'm living my life for God. And God has been meeting my needs. And he's done a few miracles too. I have nothing to worry about. Whether I pay mortgage or whether I pay rent, whether I pay gas, whether I pay electricity, whatever it is that I have to pay, my God is going to meet my needs. That's wonderful. God will take care of your needs. So 
Uh, you're in the book of Romans, I think, still. Turn to the right to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to show you a principle, and we'll close on this. Now, we began tonight talking about Nehemiah and the work of God in the, in the holy city. And there was work that needed to be done. And everyone seemed to get the memo. Everyone seemed to get the idea, except the nobles. These guys had the idea that work was for everyone else. You know something? When I was in Bible college back in the 70s, I remember uh, learning about a church. And it's a church I never attended, but I knew the city and I knew the church. And the church was sort of controlled by, I guess, half a dozen men in the church. And these men were businessmen. They were wealthy businessmen. They would get together and they made up what was called the board of elders or board of deacons or something. They were a board. And they, they controlled the church. The pastor didn't, had no control of the church. It was controlled by this board of men. So their philosophy was they would come up with the plans, these six men, they would make the decisions and then everyone else can do the work. Their job was to come up with the plans and make the decisions and then it was up to everyone else to do the work. And that, to me, I never forgot that. To me, it reminded me of the nobles that they didn't want to get involved. They didn't want to take off their, you know, $5,000 suits and set them to one side and get involved and help. A good church is a growing church. And a growing church, a church can only grow if God's people will get involved and help it to grow. And we have a principle here in chapter uh, 11 of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I'd like you to read, it, read verse 1 out loud together with me. Would you do that please? Verse 1, here we go. Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul was saying to the Corinthian believers at the church at Corinth there. He said, now here's what you do. It's very simple. You watch me. You follow me because I'm following Jesus. What you see me do, you do. That's the principle of it. I follow Jesus, you follow me. You do as I do. Don't do as I say, do as I do. I serve because I'm copying Jesus. Jesus serves. Jesus is still serving. He's in heaven and he's still serving. I'm following Jesus, so I'm going to serve. Now as pastor of the church, you follow me. I'm serving you follow me, you serve. We all serve. The church grows. God is glorified. And these 11 incredible benefits come our way. There are many jobs to be done here at Grace Baptist Church. We've got job openings just about everywhere you can imagine. Why is that? Because we're a growing church. And the more we grow, the more we have need of men and women who will serve the Lord. And so, my encouragement to you tonight, serve the Lord. 
get involved. Say, Pastor, I don't know what I can do. You come and see me or one of the other pastors and you say, listen, I'd like to get more involved. What could I do? And you let us help you to find a job that you can do in the local church. And it won't take long. And so there we have it, folks. We've come to the end. Seven messages or seven lessons on how to live the victorious Christian life. Now let's pray. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.